Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you've been reading about the Civil War for a while, and I know that you have, you've come across examples of retaliation. For example, when the rebel government threatened to retaliate against the use of African-American soldiers by refusing to treat them as POWs, or when the federal government reduced rations for Confederate prisoners in retaliation for conditions at places like Andersonville. But what none of us have done, however, is to find the patterns and deeper meaning behind such activities. None of us, that is, except Professor Lorian Foote in her challenging new book, Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. We'll talk with Professor Foote tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z g at ecu dot edu now back to civil war talk radio and welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you as is frequently the case from the third floor of the brewster building on the campus of east carolina university but as always not representing the university not speaking for the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences, or any of the subdivisions of ECU, just for myself. And likewise, my guest speaks only for herself tonight, as is almost always the case on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, this is the uh, first March, uh, first show in March 2022, and uh, so if you're listening in the distant future to this as a recording, uh, you may recall this is. Uh, uh, a moment when uh, when war has come to Europe on a significant scale for the first time since 1945 here in March 2022. So I want to take this moment to express my support for the people of Ukraine as they resist naked aggression against their country. This is not an ethnic sympathy on my part. I have both Ukrainian and Russian ancestry, 
uh, but rather based on my support for the rule of law and the ideal of national self-determination as opposed to brute force. Uh, these real-world issues make my daily concerns seem small, but we will go ahead with them, and we'll forge ahead with Civil War Talk Radio tonight, starting with a quick welcome to Gabe, a new engineer at Voice America, who's uh, running the show tonight, and uh, welcome to him. Here on campus, uh, ECU baseball has begun to right the ship after losing the first three of the season. They beat North Carolina in the third out of three games last Sunday. And then on Tuesday this week, they beat Duke in uh, a result that all right-thinking people can enjoy. Uh, Any defeat of Duke is a a, a welcome to most of us. Uh, Here at Civil War Talk Radio, let me express my thanks to all of you who have so far uh, stepped up to buy T-shirts or other Civil War Talk Radio merchandise. Uh, You can find a link to the Civil War Talk Radio store at www.impedimentsofwar.org, the usual uh, website that Mark Gaffney runs for us. You can also go to the Facebook page called Impediments of War and find a link there. And uh, as I mentioned on last week's show, and we introduced this, you can get T-shirts or coffee mugs or magnets. You cannot get everything that that the the company involved called T Public offers. For example, you cannot buy a tank top. Um, one listener reported he's holding out for the tank top or nothing. <clears throat> or he said, failing that, the Civil War Talk Radio Speedo bathing suits. Um, I'm sorry I even said that. That those are not going to happen. Uh, under any conditions. So just go to uh, impedimentsofwar.org and you can click on the link there and see what you really can get and uh, be the best dressed at your next Civil War roundtable meeting. While you're waiting for your shirt to arrive, and mine just arrived yesterday, I should say, I've ordered a, uh, I splurged on a premium version of the shirt, which cost a few dollars more. And it took several weeks to arrive. Uh, a lot of other people got there sooner than that. But it's not bad. It's it's a decent quality T-shirt and has the image of General Sherman with his boombox listening to Civil War talk radio. Uh, so uh, hope you'll con- consider that. Hope you'll also consider joining us for our next show. There will not be a show. <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, not be a show next week, March 9th. It's spring break. I'll be sitting around uh, in my t-shirt, not tank top, and uh, enjoying the quiet for a few days, grading student papers. But we'll come back on March 16th. Uh, Christopher Thrasher will be our guest. His new book is called Suffering in the Army of Tennessee. It's a social history of that army uh, after the battles for Atlanta through the retreat from Nashville. On the 23rd of March, brand new book, not published yet, but I'm so confident in it that I've scheduled an interview with Roger Lowenstein, author of Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War. That was exactly the topic we talked about in class yesterday here at ECU in History 3225, the Civil War era class, uh, discussing bonds and taxes and Uh, the Legal Tender Act, and so on. So I'm really curious to read this new book, and we'll have the author on in a few weeks. On the 30th of March, we'll end up the month with Jim Downs, who has just been named the editor of Civil War History, the academic journal, 
that John Hubble edited for many, many years. And uh, we'll hear what Jim has in mind for that. And we'll talk about his book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. Uh, he's written a lot about medicine in the Civil War, so that'll be interesting, I hope. And uh, a quick reminder, uh, two quick reminders. One is Civil War uh, battlefield tours are back on this year. Uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is offering this hallowed ground. If you missed out on signing up for the tour in May, there's still, I believe, some openings for the one in June, 18 through 26. I'll be leading those tours. Look forward to meeting with some of you on the way. Always fun to do that. And uh, last thing you want to put on your summer calendar, I haven't mentioned this in, in a year, the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Uh, tonight's non-paying sponsor, just mentioned because they're, they're good guys, uh, if you have never been to Civil War Institute, you will really enjoy it. I, I guarantee you that. Uh, so go to the Gettysburg College website, gettysburg.edu, and look for Civil War Institute. Find out where it is, when it is. It's, uh, it's, it's in June this year, something like the 6th through the 12th, something like that. I won't say. Better look it up. Uh, but I'm going to be there. Uh, I look forward to seeing you there, and uh, we will be amongst uh, hog heaven of Civil War studies when you go to Civil War Institute. So strongly recommend that. One quick comment from last week's show, um, talking with Jackie Bedell about the National Archives. She wanted me to clarify with you that most of the people they hire these days have a graduate degree in library science. She said they have a degree in library science. They do, but it's a master's degree. Their undergrad degree is still history or public history. She didn't want to be undercutting what I do as a way to prepare for a career. So I'm sharing that with you. Well, I read a book for this show every week and almost always enjoy it. Uh, it's usually a new interpretation, sometimes a new topic, something obscure. Once in a while, we get a book on a topic where you think, how did we miss that? How has no one written about that? Uh, last year, Caroline Janey did that with her, her book on the ends of war about Lee's army after Appomattox. And uh, this year, a book on a topic that when you think about it, you just smack the forehead and say, why has no one written about this before? The book is called Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. And rather than try to explain it to you, let's talk with the author, Professor Lorian Foote of Texas A&M University. Lorian, are you there? And we've got a pause, maybe a mute there. Uh, I am here. There we go. You're back on. Very good. Uh, welcome to the sh welcome back to the show. It's, it's uh, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Uh, last time we talked about your book, The Gentleman and the Roughs, conflicting manhood ideas in the Union Army, and a little bit about the the Yankee Plague. Your book on on prisoners, uh, and now you're back with with rights of retaliation. One of the things you say early on in introduction is that you feel like you're at the midpoint of an academic career. This seems like uh, this is a lot for a whole academic career that you've already produced. Well, well, thank you so much. And before we talk about the book, uh, Jerry, I do want to jump in sure. as a um, 
a graduate of the University of Kansas, I agree with you and applaud that any Duke loss is something <laughs> that, that all good Americans can get behind. So there, I, there we I, go. I agree with that totally. <laughs> I do have several listeners uh, from Duke University, and they always give me a hard time when I say stuff like that. But it's worth the price. Well, so, you know, when you have a Jay, when you invite a Jayhawk onto your onto your show, um, well, you know, you can expect what I just there, said. Rock chalk, I say. Let's go. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so you've written uh, just just a series of of innovative and interesting books. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes popular historians, I try to explain this to my students from academic historians, is the pop historian writes about whatever strikes their interest this week or they think they can sell. But in the academy, you develop a, a, a research arc across a career if you're doing it right, and it seems like you've certainly done that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, but it, it's interesting. Um, you know, every book comes out of research questions I asked in the previous book. So I like your use of the of the term arc because that's what it feels like when I look back at the four books that I've written. I can see the genesis of the next book in each of the books. So the, the standard question, how did you get interested in this topic? How did retaliation develop out of your, your previous Civil War study. Yeah, so when I was researching Yankee Plague, which is uh, the narrative of the mass escape of 3,000 Union prisoners of war from Confederate uh, prisons in the last winter of the Civil War and what that tells us about the collapse of the Confederacy. As I was reading about the journey of all of these prisoners being transferred around from sites in Georgia to sites in South Carolina, I came across retaliation correspondence. And 1,400 of these officers uh, who were union officers ended up being transferred from uh, Georgia to Charleston and put under the fire of union guns that were bombarding the city. And there was a whole bunch of correspondence about this. And I thought, this is really interesting. And so that led me down the retaliation path. So when we talk about retaliation, uh, I said in the introduction, we've all heard of examples of it. Uh, was it really a, I mean, was it something more than just a sporadic uh, idiosyncratic agreement between two opposing generals to, or not agreement, but disagreement, I suppose, uh, or, or was it something pervasive throughout the war? It's pervasive throughout the war. Retaliation occurs during nearly every military campaign of the Civil War, and it reflects the underlying concern in the Union and the Confederacy that they fight a civilized war, that the war reflects their place among the civilized nations of the world, and their fear that their war was showing that they weren't as civilized as they thought they were. And so it, it reflects both a pervasive military ritual, but also a pervasive cultural concern during the Civil War. Now, this you say it's pervasive and happens throughout the war, but uh, another rhetorical choice you made here is not to write a survey of every example you could find. You, you choose specific examples. What what drew you to to discussing one incident rather than another? So the book doesn't just follow one incident. It follows retaliation in the Department of the South. So I look at mm -hmm. one theater of the war and I show how retaliation shapes 
the conduct of the campaigns in that region. And the reason I decided to zero in on one region is because the nature of retaliation, you have to follow it across time to understand how the dynamics of individual personalities and events on the ground are shaping it. And I felt like if I tried to do a broad survey of every retaliation incident and, and how it worked in every region, you would miss that ability to see how retaliation actually shapes how armies fight on the ground and how it changes over time. So that was why I decided to, to zero in on the Department of the South, which is also a very understudied region of the Civil War. We have less works on the military history of the Department of the South than we do for other places. So, and when we say Department of the South, we're, we're talking about the, the coast of South Carolina, uh, expeditions into Florida. Uh, this is the area we're talking about. Is that correct? Right, we're, so we're talking about um, uh, Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina. So the, I, I guess it would be useful to, to get some terms defined, uh, especially the, the very title, you say rights of retaliation, and you, and you use the term ritual uh, throughout the book. That, that retaliation is not just a, a, a spontaneous tit-for-tat explosion of violence, but, but there's a whole ritualized way of doing it, and, and that is something I you know, had not thought of till reading this. Uh, so what I, what I propose we do is take a short break now and come back with that question, uh, what are the rituals of retaliation? And we'll ask that question to our guest, Lorian Foote. She's the author of Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. to Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lorianne Foote, author of Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. We've been talking about this notion of, of retaliation, of, of one side threatening the other uh, in, in response to something the first side did. Uh, and and what is striking about this book, one thing, is, is the, the ritualized nature that this takes. It's, there's, there's a right and a wrong way to engage in retaliation, apparently. Uh, can you talk about what, what the ritual involves? Sure. So it's interesting because retaliation was used in previous wars. And so officers who are trained at West Point have kind of a cultural, uh, institutional cultural understanding of, of the ritual of retaliation. But it was also surprising to me how well civilian leaders, but also people in the general public and newspaper editors kind of understood how retaliation was supposed to work. So how the ritual works is if somebody, uh, if, if a combatant commits an act that uh, seems to be atrocious, then their antagonist writes a letter that says, um, I'm writing you because you have violated the civilized rules of war. You have committed this specific act. And here is how it violates how civilized people are supposed to fight a war. And then after the writer of the letter kind of gives that introduction, the writer of the letter always says, um, you know, we have this evidence there's got to be evidence uh, that you're showing that this atrocious act occurred. And then the writer of the letter says something along the lines of, I'm giving you 15 days to respond to this letter. And acceptable responses will be, hey, you're misinformed. This didn't happen the way that you think it happened. Or two, it did happen, but it's not sanctioned by officials of my government or my army. This was some rogue person who did this and we're gonna punish that person and we agree it was terrible. Um, and then if you, you know, don't answer within 15 days or if you don't give a satisfactory answer, then I'm gonna do this named uh, act of retaliation. And everyone understood that the retali retaliatory act was supposed to be proportionate to what the atrocity was. Um, that, you know, if somebody shot a prisoner of war, you're not supposed to respond to that by massacring, you know, 30 other prisoners of war. You have to find out the exact circumstances of the act that you're retaliating for, and then your retaliation is supposed to be proportional to that act. And you're only supposed to retaliate if you really believe that the retaliation will actually change your opponent's behavior. So that's a key part of acceptable and proper retaliation. It's not revenge. It's not that you're doing this just to get revenge for what your opponent has done. Proper retaliation is a measured and exact response with the goal of changing the behavior of your opponent and moving the war back onto a civilized place. So if if the goal is to move the war back into a civilized uh, form of conduct, th then if your opponent did something truly atrocious and un uncivilized, if you respond by doing the same thing, even if it's an exact uh, uh, retaliation, uh, exactly proportional, but you do the same thing, equally barbaric, d d does, that doesn't seem to accomplish the goal. 
Right. So that's why, according to the experts on the customs of war. So, for example, Francis Lieber, the uh, emigre professor at Columbia, who was an expert on political economy and the laws of war, who wrote with a committee, General Orders Number 100 for the Union Army, or Henry Wager Halleck, uh, General in Chief of Union Armies for a period of time, who'd also written extensively about the customs of war. That's why both of them in their writings said that if, you're, if your enemy commits an act like poisoning a well or mm-hmm. massacring civilians, you cannot retaliate by doing the same thing. There are limits to what you can do. And so a lot of the debates in the, in the Civil War within the Confederacy and within the Union, when a retaliation is proposed or when a retaliation is ongoing, is a self-examination to say, okay, is this one of those things that we just can't retaliate by doing the same thing? Because if we did this, we would prove ourselves to be savage and barbaric, and we would go down in history as doing something atrocious ourselves. So they're supposed to be, when it's working correctly, a, a line that you don't cross when you do retaliation. Now, one of the interesting things about this this unspoken agreement of what was okay to do and what not to do uh, is, is the problem of individual guilt, that if even if you decide that this works, that, that the other side has, has killed someone inappropriately, uh, and you decide the only reasonable thing is, is to... Uh, maybe not kill someone, but, but to punish someone uh, in some way that will deter future acts. The person you're punishing is, is probably someone you've already got in your custody. It's not the person who committed the bad act. Mm-hmm. So retaliation almost always involves punishing an innocent party to make a point to the guilty party. Does that trouble them that they're harming an innocent person? So it does, and it, especially at first. So in the first year of the war, um, Halleck and other uh, generals in the, in the Union Army, they proclaim that the United States will not retaliate against innocent prisoners of war. But where they shift is where they believe that you can retaliate against someone who did not commit the original atrocity or the original act that violated the laws of war if there is a reasonable belief, and of course what's reasonable is part of what would end up getting debated, but if there's a reasonable belief that the atrocities are committed because an entire community and an entire army sanctions those atrocities. So even if that person didn't commit it, they're a part of it. So that's one reason that union officials will punish communities and civilians for guerrilla actions because they believe that communities support guerrillas and communities sanction what the guerrillas are doing. So therefore it's okay to punish a community. And then they'll do the same with Confederate prisoners of war when it comes to the Confederate treatment of black soldiers, because union officials are convinced that, you know, all it's widespread in the Confederacy, the support for refusing to treat black union soldiers as prisoners of war. Therefore, targeting Confederate prisoners of war is an appropriate sanction because they're part of a community support for this, for this issue. So I want to ask, does this work, this retaliation strategy? And I guess I 
can combine that with asking you about uh, John Pope's Army of Virginia. They're outside the Department of the South, but you point out that this is an early example of retaliation that helps set the stage for, for what you talk about throughout the book. Um, and that might get us to some concrete examples. Can you talk about Pope's Army and why, where they fit into the history of retaliation? So I can give you, I can, I'll start with that one, and we can use a couple of concrete examples to say that there are times that retaliation does work like mm. it's intended to work. And then there's times when it's mishandled that it actually increases violence and, and helps uh, things get a little more out of control. So in the case of, of Pope, John Pope had recently been appointed to the Army of Virginia by Abraham Lincoln. He's brought from the West, and he's brought from the West to kind of bring a new method of dealing with Confederate armies and Confederate civilians that's less hand off, hands off than uh, George McClellan had been doing in the Army of the Potomac. So Pope, as many people know, he issues a series of orders that allows for uh, foraging off the Confederate countryside, the Virginia countryside, that um, puts civilians who are in contact with Confederates out, it allows for people to remove them outside the Union Army lines. It allows for execution of uh, civilians under certain circumstances. So it's a much harder war. And so the Confederate government, at the same time that Pope is doing that, David Hunter in the Department of the South is arming formerly enslaved people on the South Carolina and Georgia Sea Islands. Um, and they're being deployed in action uh, against Confederate raiders on those islands. So those two things, Pope's orders and the arming of black men in the Department of the South causes Jefferson Davis to launch a retaliation incident. So he has Robert E. Lee write a letter to the commanding general of Union Army saying, okay, these are what we think Pope's orders are. We have heard information that your General David Hunter is arming uh, enslaved people in the Department of the South. We want to know if this is true, and if it if it, it you know uh, if it is, we're going to do this retaliation. And so, what the Confederacy ends up doing is issuing two orders: one um, saying that no officer who is captured from Pope's army will be treated as a prisoner of war, but instead will be treated as felons and set aside for execution in case John Pope executes any civilians. And then there's also a retaliation order against Hunter that declares him to be an outlaw, which means that he has absolutely no legal rights and that anyone can kill Hunter with impunity and you know there will be no punishment for that. And also declares that any United States officer who drills or is associated with uh, enslaved people in a state of servile insurrection, because that's what Confederates consider Black Union soldiers, they view them as servile insurrectionists and not as legitimate soldiers, um, that any Union officer who does that uh, can be tried and executed for inciting servile insurrection. So those are the initial retaliation orders. And in the view of the Confederacy, the Lincoln administration backs down <laughs> because the Lincoln administration notifies them that Pope's orders aren't in force. And in fact, um, after the retaliation is issued by the Confederacy, there are lots of orders that come from the War Department asking Pope to clarify and modify his original orders to ensure that civilians are protected in ways that they don't seem to be protected in the original wording of his order. So both of those things cause the Confederate government to say, okay, look, 
we got the union to back down by doing this retaliation. So this is a method that we can use the rest of the war to try to get the Lincoln administration to change its policies. Now, of course, the, the sticking point and the key point with which most of your book concerns itself with is the use of black soldiers by, uh, by the federal government. In South Carolina, you've got David Hunter arming the, the first South Carolina regiment. Uh, eventually, you get a second South Carolina regiment. And you get, uh, eventually, that means some of those soldiers are going to be captured. So uh, what does the Confederate government live up to their, their retaliatory threat? Do they uh, treat these, uh, these captured soldiers as uh, servile insurrectionists? Uh, what, what do they do with them? So the answer is they don't live up to their original threat. And it's because of a counter retaliation by the United States. So the key here is that originally the Confederacy is going to decide after kind of having a big internal debate about what to do about the United States arming black soldiers. <laughs> the Confederate Congress issues a retaliation resolution in May of 1863 that proclaims any black person captured in United States uniform, including men who were born free in Northern states. And that's critical to how mm. things unfold. Even if they're born free in a Northern state, any black person captured in uniform will be turned over to the state where they were captured um, and tried according to the laws of that state. And then any officer captured in command of black soldiers will be turned over to Confederate military courts for trial. So this is all going to come to a head in the Department of the South, because what happens is uh, Confederates don't capture anybody from the first and second South Carolina for a long time in that region. Who they <laughs> capture are black soldiers from the 54th Massachusetts who come wow. down to the Department of the South and participate in an action on James and Soligare Islands in Charleston Harbor. And then, of course, who participate in the famous assault on Battery Wagner on Morris Island. And Confederates capture uh, 13 54th Massachusetts soldiers on Soligare Island and then 73 54th Massachusetts soldiers at the attack on Battery Wagner. And in the wake of these captures, because this regiment has, I mean, it's, it's made up mostly of free black men from northern states, and it's got very wealthy and prominent Republican supporters. So there's a lot of pressure on the Lincoln administration to do something. So Lincoln issues General Order 252, which is a famous order that, mm -hmm. that says, you know, uh, if there's anyone... If any captured black Union soldiers are sold into slavery or executed, we're going to do a retaliation. A Confederate soldier will be executed or put into hard labor. Um, and most historians think this order had no effect at all. But what they don't recognize is, the, is that this order was specifically issued to address the situation in the Department of the South. And the War Department backed it up by setting aside white hostages from South Carolina who were captured Confederate soldiers. And the, the Confederate War Department recognized this. I mean, I have the, I have the Confederate Bureau of War <laughs> record where they say, okay, the United States is holding hostages for the free black men from the, from, that we just captured. And it leads to um, the Confederate government 
recognizing the international publicity coming from the from the 54th i mean europeans are really interested in what what's going on mm-hmm. and so the confederate government backs off and in a series of events that i follow in the book including the battle of alusty in florida the Confederate Secretary of War, James Seddon, ends up writing letters to Confederate military commanders and to Confederate governors going, we can't enforce our, our resolutions. We have to treat free black men as prisoners of war. And so that's why after the Battle of Alusty in Florida, the black men who were captured from the 54th, the 8th USCT, and the 1st North Carolina, they end up in Andersonville. They end up being treated as prisoners of war rather than being turned over to states and tried to survive insurrectionists. And it's I, because- I, I'm just going to say get, getting sent to Andersonville is kind of the uh, <laughs> for a consolation prize is not no, maybe they, the best outcome you could hope for. But it is interesting because, as you say, these other uh, soldiers who have been turned over to South Car- the state of South Carolina for trial uh, are being held. They're, it's sort of like at Guantanamo, they're, they're being held as enemy combatants, but they're not being put on trial because the state doesn't quite know what to do with them. Right. But eventually, so so they kind of, yeah, they kind of get held there for, for over a year. But I mean, eventually James Seddon uh, tells the governor of South Carolina, Millage Bonham, you've got to turn these guys over. So even those prisoners eventually are integrated into the Confederate military prison system, and they end up in Florence, which again is not a, is not a good place that you want to be. Mm-hmm. But by being there, it means the Confederacy is recognizing them as prisoners of war. And in fact, in February 1865, the Confederacy explicitly changes the wording of their original resolution to recognize free black men as prisoners of war, which was the whole purpose of the union's retaliation. Well, there's so many interesting side notes to this story. Uh, one of them, you make the point that uh, the, the, the black soldiers long struggle for equal pay within the union army is in part reinforced by the fact that they eventually convinced the Confederacy to treat the uh, African-American soldiers as soldiers, and they say, well, if they're going to do it, shouldn't our own government also treat them equally uh, yeah. and pay them the same? It's, it's a pretty convincing argument. Uh, there's more to talk about this and more about other uh, uh, things you write about. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Laurieann Foote, author of Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lorian Foote, author of Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers, and Campaigns in the American Civil War. Uh, one of the key words in that subtitle, Civilization, uh, Lurie, you make the point that both sides strive to portray themselves as upholding civilization as they see it, uh, and thus international opinion matters a great deal. In the, the example of the 54th, I thought it was interesting how much international opinion weighed in uh, after the Fort Wagner when Colonel Shaw was buried with his soldiers, which the Confederates intended to be an insult. Uh, the way uh, Shaw's father replied that that was in a no greater place of honor, and uh, the European audience just ate that up. Just uh, the Confederacy was shamed by that. Uh, the power of international opinion uh, perhaps should not be sold short. And it's interesting to me because it wasn't even just international opinion. There was such a self-consciousness about how history would uh, mm. look back on them. I Just when I was reading the correspondence when I was reading the discussions I kept seeing the phrase what do you think for the eyes of history so at one point uh Halleck is writing to Francis Lieber about a proposed retaliation and he says to Lieber what do you think will be the verdict in the eyes of history and and I found that self-consciousness that you know they cared about their reputation down through future ages as well as their reputation among other civilized nations that, uh, boy, one wishes there were perhaps more of that today. Uh, to tie this just to a contemporary event, you know, you and I are talking here today, it's March of 2022, and uh, uh, there is a war in Ukraine, and in the last day or so we're reading of Russian forces bombarding civilian uh, residential neighborhoods and cities as a military tactic. In 1863, you write about the federal forces using the Swamp Angel, the giant cannon outside of Charleston, to bombard civilian neighborhoods in Charleston. Uh, was there any precedent to that in the Civil War, to, to attacking a, a, a city as opposed to an armed camp? Yeah, so it happens at Fredericksburg um, mm -hmm. as well. And so this gets into the, the interesting issue of sometimes the customs of war aren't clear mm -hmm. about what's legal and what isn't. And the bombardment of cities, this, this one was an incident where 
the retaliation doesn't really help anything or solve anything because you can interpret the laws of war differently. So the Confederacy is going to say it's clearly a violation of the laws of war to stop, start bombarding Charleston without giving notice <laughs> because mm. Quincy Wilmore, like he's, he messes up badly by sending a note that says, Hey, I'm going to start bombing you in four hours. And, um, that was not, that was not good. Um, but the issue is that, that Quincy Gilmore, who's the major general in command of Union forces in the Department of the South in the summer of 1863, he's convinced that what he, he, he is doing does not violate the laws of war. Because his point is, it's not a siege. The Union mm -hmm. has been doing operations against Charleston for, you know, months. So everybody knows that an attack on Charleston is imminent. And because the Union doesn't have Charleston completely surrounded, women and children can get out. They, they are capable of leaving. And Charleston has a Confederate army in it. It has uh, weapons and defending it. So, you know, Gilmore says it is perfectly legal for me to attack a city that has a Confederate army inside of it. Um, I don't even have to give notice. The operations that we've been doing since, you know, 1861 are, is your notice. We've been trying to take your harbor <laughs> for a yeah. long time, you know. And so it's your responsibility to get the women and children out. And if you didn't get the women and children out when you knew that we were on the verge of capturing Morris Island and turning your batteries against your city, that's on you. Um, you know, but the, but the Confederate press and PGT Beauregard, I mean, they have this long extended, um, you know, answer to that about how that's not true, that under no circumstances can you bombard a city when women and children are still in it and they cite all of these authorities. But, but that's an example of kind of a debate about what should civilized war look like in practice when you're trying to capture a city. So one of the things the Confederates do then is uh, employ... Uh, a term we heard back in the uh, the Iraq War days, uh, human shields. Yes. Uh, the the they they put. Well, how how do they do that? How do they try to defend yeah, the city? So, so this is this is an action by kind of a rogue theater commander who really did not act with the approval of his authority. So Sam Jones, who is the Confederate general that is defending Charleston. What he does is he asks for permission to bring Union officers from a prison camp and put them in portions of the city that are under fire from the Union guns that are trying to bombard Charleston. And he gets permission from this for this. Um, and he brings 50. But then he ends up, there ends up being 600 Union officers that are brought to the city. And they're put in sections where union guns are firing. And so in retaliation for this, uh, the union sends 600 Confederate POWs to areas that are under fire from Confederate shells. Um, these are eventually known as the immortal 600 by uh, Confederate supporters. And so this is a this is a situation where both sides are putting officers under the fire of guns. And th this is really questionable whether this is something that was allowable <laughs> under the laws of war um, for either side to do this. It, I, as I was reading that section, I, I of course heard of the immortal six hundred as as they go down in lost cause rhetoric uh and I, I was waiting for them to show up but first i'm reading there's only 50 on each side and then i'm reading oh and they actually got exchanged and returned yeah and i'm saying okay 50 now it's zero where's the 600 and uh there was so much uh snafu to take a, a 
a term from another war and apply it here. Uh, so much misunderstanding and miscommunication in this event. Uh, but they do end up with the 600. And then you point out that that the federal government then engages in a, a ration retaliation that, that has not been written about much before. Yes, yeah, so John Foster, who by this point is the Union commander in the Department of the South, um, he's got these prisoners that have been sent to him. And so he's very concerned about the treatment of Union prisoners at Andersonville and at Macon and then later at Florence and, and Camp Sorghum. And these accusations that are flying around the United States that Confederates are purposely withholding rations and starving Union prisoners of war. And so what he does is he believes that he has permission <laughs> to retaliate on these 600 Confederate officers for the blanket treatment of Union prisoners of war in general. So what he does is he issues a ration retaliation against these 600 Confederate officers where he gives them the ration that he believes is the, uh, the ration that's being issued to Union pr prisoners of war who, be, who are being held in Confederate prisons. And But the problem is he doesn't specifically and clearly communicate this to his Confederate counterpart. And so there's no, this is not going to bring about a change of behavior on the part of the Confederacy. So to purposely sicken, because I mean, these got these Confederate prisoners of war, they sicken under the mm -hmm. ration that they're being fed, uh, which is part of the point. So it's very controversial, even within his department, what Foster does. Um, but, but the big problem with how he goes about doing it is that it can't bring about a change of behavior, which is the whole point of retaliation. So he's going for the wrong target in this case. Um, now, in in the last chapter and and part of previous chapters, uh, we get to really the the uh, worst elements of of civil war military misbehavior of massacring prisoners. Uh, you talk about that at Olesti and how how the federal government responds to that and. So in the interest of time, I, I want to jump ahead to uh, your discussion of what happens with Sherman's army in the Carolinas, where things really, it starts to look like a Goya uh, exhibit of, of the, these bodies of, of soldiers captured and stripped and mutilated. Um, that's not how we, most of us think of the American Civil War, uh, as having that level of barbarity. Uh, what went on there? So this, this gets to the issue of pillaging um, and, and the big concern with controlling soldiers like Sherman's men who are marching through Georgia and marching through South Carolina and Sherman's wanting to do this hard war, but he also wants his soldiers to be restrained from, from pillaging, which everybody believes pillagers are uncivilized barbarians. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of Sherman's men do begin to do this kind of behavior. And so what happens is as Sherman moves through, um, some of his men who are foragers, who are assigned as foragers, they're found murdered with their throats cut and signs on their bodies that say death to foragers. And so Sherman is going to issue orders to retaliate for this, and he will end up executing 43 Confederate prisoners of war in retaliation for the murder of these uh, foragers. And this gets into the issue of were these men foragers 
or were they actually pillaging? Who murdered them? Confederate soldiers or just kind of citizens on the ground who, who captured these men? And so this is an example of an incident that really escalates. It, it doesn't stop the violence. It actually makes it, it, it worse. And it's exa an example of kind of a perfect storm that happens in South Carolina that just contributes to this concern that the Civil War is not being fought in a civilized way, but it is degenerating into savagery. I mean, you show where generals uh, Kilpatrick on the federal side and Wheeler on the, the rebel side are engaging in correspondence that, that resembles the kind of ritual that you've described mm -hmm. earlier in the book, but it doesn't have the same outcome this time. They, they're, uh, they, it doesn't result in ameliorating the violence that makes it worse. And in this case, it's because of Sherman, because he actually, uh, when he gets wind of what's happening, he orders Kilpatrick, who had been satisfied by his correspondence with Wheeler, he orders Kilpatrick to immediately execute 18 Confederate prisoners of war. And then he he sends a message to Wade Hampton, his counterpart, you know, saying, I've already done these executions. So he, he doesn't give... A, a chance for the ritual to unfold the way it's supposed to, where there can be a negotiation between the leadership on both sides. Well, it, it is, the, again, these are all incidents many of us have read about before in one form or another, the Immortal 600 or the Massacre at Olasti or uh, a lot of these things we, we've been familiar with as, as separate isolated incidents, but to pull them together and to show how they, they, they all cohere to this model of, of ritual correspondence over retaliation, uh, I, I find this really fascinating, and, and I, I hope this book finds a wide audience. Uh, we just have a, a minute left. Uh, do you have another project in the hopper? I do. It's called Honor and Dogs, Warrior Cultures of 19th Century North America. And I am looking at uh, using uh, dogs, um, hmm and their involvement in warfare in the 19th century as a window into how honor and hunting and animals fit into a Seminole warrior culture, U.S. Army warrior culture, and Pawnee warrior culture. Wow. Well, that, that originality, once again, is, is the hallmark of, of your work. That really sounds interesting and, uh, and, and certainly an angle that I, I don't think many people have taken in the past, so it should be good. Uh, well, this book, again, uh, listeners, you will enjoy, if you, if you want a new take on things you think you already know about, uh, you'll enjoy the book by Lorian Foote called Rights of Retaliation, Civilization, Soldiers and Campaigns in the American Civil War. Lorian, as always, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.